So we are continuing this morning our journey through the sacred season of Lent. And as you know, as a congregation, we are reading together the entire narrative, the Gospel of Luke. And uh, if you have not started doing so, it's not too late that you can catch up. Uh, We have put together a daily reading plan with uh, text for you to read each day. There's also on our website all sorts of different resources to help and to sort of shed light and to bring light on this journey through Lent, and I would encourage you to do so. Uh, It's not too late to join us if you've not. This week we'll be reading chapters 12 through 16, and as you'll see, there's all sorts of powerful passages there. We're referring to Luke as the gospel of nobodies, because what we see over and over in Luke's gospels, even more so than the other three, is that he paints a picture of Jesus as, as one who is deeply concerned has an affinity for, an affection for the people that society considered to be the nobodies, the marginalized, the pushed down, those that are oftentimes made to feel small or second class. You may remember a couple of weeks ago we pointed out that the Gospel of Luke is written to a gentleman by the name of Theophilus, a word that means lover of God, but it's most excellent Theophilus because he was He was a somebody. He was someone uh, who was seen in that time as someone who was uh, a somebody. He was a man of means. And Luke is writing to him as a way of saying to all of the somebodies, not just Theophilus, but all of the somebodies, that God views the nobodies as somebodies and that we, as the somebodies of society, are to view the nobodies in the same way, to help them see to lift them up and to help them see that they are indeed somebody to God. And that, if you don't care about the nobodies, then you really haven't fully become a follower of God. Now, I also invited us to bring our Bibles each Sunday, uh, and I know some of you are doing well at that. Some of you need another reminder, and so let this serve as that. If you did not bring your gospel or your Bible this morning, I would invite you to reach into the pew pocket in front of you there, because we're going to be reading a small section of the text, but then we're going to unpack some other stuff around it. And one of the things that I want us to notice this morning is that Luke uses a literary device in which he tells stories, in which he tells stories in which two people sort of stand in contrast to each other. There's oftentimes a nobody, and then there's a somebody in almost all of these stories. Some examples that you might have noticed, the parable of the prodigal son, this man has two sons, right? One of them is righteous and one of them is rebellious. And when the father welcomes back the rebellious son, the somebody, the righteous son, becomes resentful. And in looking at these two people held in contrast to each other, we come to see that one of them is more lost than the other, and it's not the one that we thought at the beginning of the story. And then we look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. We, we know the story, a man is beaten and left for dead, and a, a priest and a Levite are walking by. Priests and Levites were the somebodies of the day, but they are afraid to stop and help, and they just sort of pass by, p- pretending that they don't even see him. But then along comes a Samaritan who was a nobody at the time. Good Samaritan would have been an oxymoron. No one would put those two words together, but yet he is the one 
that helps. And so the nobody becomes the hero, and the somebodies are seen to be nobodies. Well, the story that we're about to look at this morning, we see that same scenario. The Pharisees were the somebodies. They were the religious leaders of the day. We're going to talk more about them in just a few moments. But they were the teachers of the day. They were the most respected in all of society. And what we see is that Jesus is at the home of a Pharisee. And the Pharisee has created this dinner party and invited all of his Pharisee friends. And along comes this woman who just sort of crashes the party. Now, According to tradition, this woman is a prostitute. We don't see that in Luke's gospel. This story appears in all four of the gospels. In the other three, she's identified as a prostitute. But here, Luke just refers to as a sinful woman. And what we see in comparing these somebodies and these nobodies is that the Pharisee knows a whole lot less than he thinks he does, and that the real somebody in the room is this woman. And so I invite you as we listen and look to watch carefully for how Luke uses these movements in this story. Today's scripture is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, verses 36 through 38. Here begins the reading. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And a woman in the city who was a sinner, having learned that he was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment. Here ends the reading, the word of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to God. So Craig Groeschel is a pastor, an author, and he once said this. He said, the things closest to the heart of God are oftentimes the most offensive to the Pharisees. Isn't that a great statement? The things that are closest to the heart of God are all too often the things that are most offensive to the Pharisees. Now, as I said a moment ago, the Pharisees of the first century were the somebodies. They were the ones that were seen and revered. They were the saints of the time. But have you noticed that today, if you were to refer to somebody as a Pharisee, that wouldn't exactly be a compliment, You'd essentially be calling them a hypocrite. It's not something nice to say to somebody. But in the first century, they were highly respected people. They were the somebodies. They weren't the priests, but they were the rabbis and the teachers. They were the instructors of the law of Moses. And they saw it as their responsibility to uphold and to enforce the religious laws of the day. They were the good lawyers of the day that, that, that would tease out the meaning And what the law really meant, they made sure that everything was buttoned down, crystal clear, that there was no gray area whatsoever. They were good lawyers in that sense. This last Friday, we celebrated the life of John Roach, who was an amazing man in this community, in this congregation for over 50 years. He spent his life dedicating uh, to so much in the city 
and in the community around us, to TCU, to University Christian Church. One of the speakers that spoke that eulogized him was D. Kelly Jr. Now, some of you may know that name. He's also a pretty prominent lawyer here in the city of Fort Worth. And when he stood up to eulogize John Roach, the first thing he said is, John Roach, the man who never met a lawyer joke that he didn't love. John would have loved to poke fun at the Pharisees. You see, according to the Jewish law, uh, to the Jewish historian Josephus, there were about 6,000 Pharisees at any given time. It was not necessarily a huge number. Sort of think of it as a sect, a denomination within Judaism at the time. But yet, the reason that there were only about 6,000 Pharisees is that most people in that day and time could not rise to the level of holiness that was required in order to be a Pharisee. You might respect them. You might want your rabbi to be one, but most couldn't live up to the expectations, to the requirements. It was just too hard to live that way. The word Pharisee comes from an Aramaic word that means separated ones. They were the ones that were set apart. That's how they practiced their faith, sort of set apart from everybody else. There was the sinners, and there were the saints. They were the holy ones, and they were very careful, very careful about not doing anything that might be even remotely considered to be sinful. They would not even associate with sinners. Now, obviously, they probably couldn't avoid it altogether, But if you were a Pharisee, you certainly wouldn't break bread with one of them. You wouldn't invite one in order to uh, come to your home. You would only associate with people like you, people that were trying to be pious, righteous, people trying to be holy. You would do everything in your power in order to be saintly and not a sinner. And so there was this dividing line between them and the non-religious or the nominally religious, what the Pharisees oftentimes referred to as the Amha Aretz. You may remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about that as being a derogatory term. It meant people of the land, and it meant that they were nobodies. They were less than. The Pharisees, they would minister to them. They would help lead them away from a life of sin, but they wouldn't associate them with them if they could. They would try to avoid them at all costs. In a lot of ways, the Pharisees were sort of zealots for the law. And their religion, their faith, was based upon the rules. The rules were clear. And they saw it as their responsibility to make them even more clear. For instance, according to the law, according to the Ten Commandments, the third, the third of the commandments was to honor the Sabbath and to keep it holy. Now, the tradition of the Pharisees, as I said, was to sort of tease that out. And so they came up with 39 different categories of things that would constitute as work. Within those categories, there were lists and lists and lists of things that you could not do on the Sabbath if you were a faithful Jew. For instance, if you were a tailor, you could not put your needle into a, into a garment and walk with it. 
You could put it in, but you couldn't walk, couldn't go anywhere with it. If you were one of the 5% of the people that knew how to read or write at the time, you were not allowed to write on the Sabbath. It was too close to being work. There were certain knots that you couldn't tie. You couldn't walk more than a certain distance. Everything was clear. Everything was clear. They took what the law said and created hundreds of laws in order to go along with it to explain what not to do. And they did this with ritual washing. They did it with all sorts of things. Now, the challenge, of course, is that when your faith is all about the rules, is that it takes a lot to please God. And so you're constantly asking, have I done enough? Am I doing this right? Am I good enough? Have I met all of the requirements? And so what they would do is they would continue in order to nail that down, to make sure they would create even more rules that they could live up to and aspire to follow. So what I've noticed, though, is that when your faith is all about the rules, when your religion is all based upon doing what is right, that there are a couple of tendencies that tend to happen. The first, the first is that you focus on the rules rather than the people and on God. That when your faith is about the rules, that you focus on the rules and not on God and not the people around you. This happened time and time again with the Pharisees, and as a result of that, everything that they did would just sort of suck the life out of faith. They would suck the joy out of faith. Andrina Sawyer once said, legalism has killed more faith than doubt ever has. Legalism has killed more faith than doubt ever has. Jesus was constantly in conflict, butting heads with these Pharisees. For instance, I mentioned a moment ago that you're not allowed to work on the Sabbath, and including one of those categories was that you're not allowed to heal or provide any type of aid in any way, shape, or form. Well, Jesus, as we know, was constantly healing people on the Sabbath. And this would make the Pharisees furious. Why do you continue to insist on breaking the law, Jesus, they would say. One time, he laid it all out for them. He says to them, he says, remember, though, remember that the Sabbath was made for humankind and not humankind for the Sabbath. And this was revolutionary at the time. Because he was saying that the, that the rules, that the law of God is meant to, to help you, to bless you, to help you become the person that God created you to be, it was designed to give you rest. Sabbath was made to renew you, to keep you grounded and fresh, not to enslave you. The problem when your religion is based upon rules, is that the focus becomes the rules and not the people and certainly not on God. The second thing that often happens when you have a faith like that is that you tend to sometimes get a little self-righteous. That happens a lot when we follow the rules. We tend to follow and notice everyone else who's not following the rules. We know how that works, and pretty soon we start to feel a little smug about ourselves because we're doing things right, even if they can't. We look down our noses upon the people that don't follow the rules, that don't practice the faith in the way that we think that they should practice the faith. 
And there's a fine line, isn't there, between smugness and self-righteousness and judgmentalism. They tend to follow one another. The theologian A.W. Tozier once said, a Pharisee is hard on others and easy on himself, but a spiritual man is easy on others and hard on himself. Do you know what one of the most leading characteristics of young people who I talk to who tell me why they don't associate with the church anymore? I didn't ask that question very well, but you know what I'm trying to say. The reason that young people tell me that they don't go to church anymore is because they look around at all the Christians and they think they're a bunch of judgmental hypocrites, that it's more focused on the rules than what is right. Oftentimes they see They don't want anything to do with the church because it's all about judging other people. At least that's the perception. And I think that's why Jesus would teach over and over and over again about the the dangers of judging other people. He'd say things like, why are you so worried about the speck in somebody else's eye when you have this huge log in your own? There was another time when he was talking about this tendency to be self-righteous. And he tells a story. It's one of those stories where there are two different characters, one who is a a nobody, uh, one who's a somebody, and oftentimes the story ends up being about the one that started out as a nobody and ended up being a somebody. There were two men that went to a temple, he says. One was a Pharisee and one was a tax collector. And remember that the tax collectors at that time were the ones that nobody wanted to associate with. I like to use this as an illustration around this time of spring every year as we get closer and closer to April 15th because that anxiety that you feel right now when I start talking about the tax date, that's how they felt all the time. And yet this Pharisee goes into the temple and he sees this tax collector and he says, thank God I'm not like him. As if to say, aren't you glad I'm yours, God? Aren't you lucky to have me? And yet, the tax collector is standing there beating his breast, weeping, and says, God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. And Jesus asks, which of those do you think left the temple justified? I believe that self-righteousness is a challenge for a lot of us as Christians. And so when I talk about self-righteous, when I think about judgmentalism, how many of you can picture in your mind someone who lives up to that reputation? I think a lot of us do. And yet, how many of us, when we hear that, think of ourselves, if we're honest with ourselves, and say that that is a constant struggle to not be so smug, to not be self-righteous? I know that I am one of those. Well, here in the story that we just looked at, there's this Pharisee. Later, later on, we learn that his name is Simon, and he's somebody. He's somebody who's respected. He does everything that he can to separate himself from sinners. And this woman with this horrible reputation crashes his dinner party, and you can only imagine what his response would have been. How dare she come into my home? How dare she come into my home? But as you picture this, as you picture this, you can can almost imagine, you can see in your mind's eye her shaking, knowing, knowing that the eyes of judgment are 
bearing down upon her. She knows that she's not supposed to be there, that, that she is surrounded by all of these men that preached against women like her all the time. But yet she'd heard, she'd heard something about this man named Jesus and she was intrigued. It seemed so compelling, this message of forgiveness, of grace, of mercy. And when she sees him, she begins to sob. She kneels at his feet and the tears come streaming down her face and falling on his feet. And she lets down her hair, something scandalous for a woman to do in public at that time and begins to wipe the dirt from his feet. So what do you see when you look at this woman? A moment ago, I held Wayland and I walked around and I said, what do you see when you look at this child? When you see this woman, what do you see? What do you see? Some will see an amazing scene of generosity, of gratitude, of worship, of love, we know, we may not know the story, but we know there's got to be some sort of a backstory there. We don't know what she's done that is so bad that she would be in such desperate need of grace, but we know she's there. We don't know what happened in her past that would give her the courage to show up uninvited in this way, but something is there. But what we do see is that perhaps for the first time in her life, a man looked at her and says that you are loved that you are somebody, that you have value, that you have worth, that you matter to God, that your sins, whatever they may be, they are forgiven. I would hope that if I were there, that I would have been amazed at this expression of love and grace on both sides, Jesus and this woman. But that's not what the Pharisees saw. You see right there in Verse 39, that Simon says to Jesus, if this man was a prophet, he would know who this woman is, the kind of woman she is, this woman who's touching him and, and know that she is a sinner. Well, Jesus responds to Simon in that moment, and he tells another one of his stories about two men that both owe a debt. One of them one of them owes 50 denarii, and a denarii at that time was about a day's wage. So he owned about 50 days' worth of work. And the other man, though, he owed 500 denarii, almost two years' worth of wages. And the man who is the holder of both of these notes says to both of these men, in a moment of grace, in a moment of generosity, don't worry, your sins are forgiven, your, your debts are relieved, and forgives these debts and so Jesus then asked Simon the Pharisee, so, so which of these do you think would have loved that man the most? And Simon says, almost without having to think, well, obviously it's the man who owed the 500 denarii. And Jesus says, do you not understand that the people who have been forgiven much love much? And probably motioned to this woman who kneeled at his feet and then he says, right there in verse 44, my favorite part of the whole story, he asks a simple but yet profound question, Simon, do you even see this woman? Do you see her? Do you see this woman? Because all that Simon could see, all this Pharisee could see was this woman's sins. He couldn't see that this was somebody's daughter. He couldn't see that this was somebody's sister. He couldn't see what had somehow led her to this life. 
Do you even see her, he says. But what Jesus saw, what Jesus saw was a child of God. That God looked at her as God's own. Jesus remembered what she looked like when she was dedicated in the sanctuary when the preacher walked her down the aisle and said, look at this child, holy and beloved. Jesus looked at her and saw the plans and the potential that she had, the dreams that God had for her, saw the brokenness in her heart, the emptiness in her life. He saw all of those things. And I think... I think that the reason that Luke tells us this story is to remind us that that's how God sees all of us. That that's how God sees us. God sees not necessarily what we could have been, but what we can be. God sees beyond our sins, our struggles, our shortcomings to the person that God intends for us to be and offers us grace and mercy and love and forgiveness. Now I know, I know that there's a lot of people in this room right now that grew up in churches that didn't hear that much. You were raised in a tradition where that was not the message. But yet that every Sunday was another guilt trip where you left afraid, feeling bad about all the ways you were falling short, about all the ways that you were sinful. Well, church, hear me when I say this. The gospel is not about sinners. The gospel is about a God who wants to save. The focus of the gospel isn't guilt, it's grace. It's an invitation to receive the love, the grace of God, not the rules, not the guilt. The central focus of the gospel is that we worship a God who looks at a woman who's at the end of a rope and says, you are mine and I love you. You see, going to church is not supposed to be a guilt trip. It's supposed to be a journey in grace. So when you look at these story, these two people, who's the one that gets it right? Who gets it wrong? Who's the somebody? Who's the nobody? Who's the sinner and who's the saint? You see, we worship a God who knows us better than we know ourselves. Who knows all the things that we've done, all of the things that we've left undone, but loves us anyway and loves us relentlessly and completely, ceaselessly. And what we are supposed to be as a church is a body of people who love in the same way. So until that day and along the way, may we focus more on being the people that God sees us to be and loves us as we are.